Welcome to the FinTV podcast series, where we tap into the collective expertise of the world's leading supply chain, manufacturing, and digital innovators. My name is Maria Villablanca, the co-founder and CEO of Future Insights Network, and I'll be your host. Join us every week to hear the opinions, lessons, and general guidelines from the industry's leading minds. FinTV, insights for today's digital leaders. Hi, welcome to Future Insights Network podcast. This week's guest is Professor Tom Davenport, who is President's Distinguished Professor in Information Technology and Management at Babson College. Tom, welcome. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. I'm Tim Coulthard. I'm Maria Villablanca. So we're going to uh, look at some of the interesting aspects of and applications of uh, AI, mainly in this discussion. I know you've got a book coming out called The AI Advantage, which is very much focused around this, this practical application of the technology. Before we get into the, some of those interesting topics, maybe you could just tell us a bit about your, your background and your career story so far to set the scene. Sure. Well, I, in some sense, I've been doing the same thing for a long time, research, consulting, writing, uh, teaching. But um, the topics have sometimes changed. And I, I started with business process re-engineering when that was a hot topic and then did some work with ERP systems and knowledge management and for I don't know 15 or 20 years I did analytics and big data work and that sort of led me into AI um, over the past five years or so. I've been I've tried some work with AI during the last AI spring and then obviously the interest died out so I stopped working on it but obviously a lot of people are interested in it again today. Absolutely. I mean, so we've we've got a copy of your book, and it's been fascinating reading it. And I'll, and I'll say, besides the fact that it's very topical to what our members are dealing with uh, right now in terms of the uh, cognitive revolution or the cognitive and AI spring, as you talk about, um, what I found really interesting about the book was how practical it is, how you can give real practical examples uh, of how people are implementing things and uh, and what to do about it and what to set up for their own businesses so that they can use this effectively too. Um, what I'd like to first start out with really is you you start out your book in with with uh, with something with a statement and you actually end the book your last the last or second to last statement if you don't mind uh, on on your book in your book it says a company with no AI capabilities is a foolish. Uh, is as foolish as a company with no internet presence uh, or one that insists on using analog paper-based business processes. Um, that's a very, very big statement. I mean, one of the things that I've noticed in the book as well is that you have so many surveys that you reference uh, that show a high awareness rate for the importance of AI and cognitive. And I think if we were to poll our members, there a lot of them would say, yeah, we definitely think it's very important. But uh, so few organizations are actually making any real and significant investments in this. Why do you think that is and, and how do you think that can change? Um, well, it's a good question. I mean, I don't know if it's high or low. I was just um, working on another little piece this morning where I reviewed all the surveys and it looks like in the U.S. about 30% of large enterprises are doing, you know, moderately at least substantial work with AI and um, I saw another survey this morning and across 14 countries, it was about 20% on average. So um, as with any technology, it takes a while to really get, um, you know, going in a substantial 
way. I think um, a lot of people do view it as uh, sort of experimental, which yeah. some aspects of it are, but some have been around for 20 or 30 years, like some aspects yeah. of machine learning. So yeah. um, I, don't, I don't think that's necessarily a reason to wait. I think it's um, mostly an issue of awareness and um, knowledge of what the technologies can do. Um, it's interesting. I didn't focus on it too much in the book, but in some of these surveys that I've done, most of which I worked on with Deloitte, where I'm a senior advisor, the, um, the level of excitement is really high and um, positive feelings. And, you know, when one of the questions we asked, do you think AI is overhyped? I don't know, maybe 20% said yes. Then we said, do you think it's underhyped? And twice as many said, yes, it's underhyped. So, and the more experience they had, the more positive they were about it. So I think um, people are quite bullish who have used it and used it in the right way. One of the interesting concepts that you've outlined in the book is this idea of moonshots versus low-hanging fruit. And I think in the early days of the technology, some of the claims and ambitions were, were lofty and, and made for the right reasons probably, but that didn't necessarily pan out. And I sense that you're now advocating a much more pragmatic grassroots application for this. I do. I start the book with several sort of stories about organizations that pursued moonshots and were not terribly successful with them. Um, you know, attempts to cure cancer or to provide a very high level of investment advice at a bank. Um, but at those same companies, there were also less ambitious projects that are working quite well. Yeah. And, and then I talk about Amazon and you know, arguably one of the most technologically capable organizations on the planet. And even they have struggled a bit with their moonshots, this Amazon Go store that supposedly doesn't have any people working in it. Although when I went there, there were three people working in it. Um, <laughs> it's probably more than a lot of stores. Yeah, more than most convenience stores, certainly. Yeah. And um, the, you know, the drone uh, delivering packages by drone, maybe that'll happen someday, but it seems to be a ways off. But as Jeff Bezos said um, in 2017, most of their machine learning activities have been, I think, quietly but meaningfully improving core operations. So if that's good for Amazon, it's probably good for everybody. And that's really the approach that I take in the, in yeah. the book. I mean, I was really struck by the fact that, that one of the examples of an organization using AI is, is NASA, who are literally capable of a moonshot, maybe, maybe not so much now, but certainly in the past. Yet they're using AI in things like back office functions, um, accounting, HR processes, and that kind of stuff. But if you wanted to encapsulate mm -hmm. what you should potentially be doing in a realistic sense, that's an amazing example. It is. I love um, the quote from the guy who was managing the, the back office um, automation project. He said, this is not rocket science, and we would know. <laughs> um, <laughs> And they are, I mean, to be fair to them, they are doing some work with Google and Intel and so on on celestial navigation as well, which is, I don't know, maybe that comes to like a moonshot, yeah. but um, they are, are also pursuing some prosaic, but important, I think, applications in the, in the back office. Do you think perhaps um, maybe some companies might find it a bit of a daunting prospect, you know, the AI cognitive is such a 
big conundrum for some companies or maybe so scary a prospect because they're thinking of a moonshot, because they're thinking a big claim. Uh, you offer a lot of practical steps on how an organization can get started with this. Can you perhaps expand on that a little bit? Sure. I mean, um, there are more and more ways to get started. And if you, um, since I came from an analytics-oriented background, if you want to do statistical machine learning, at least the more straightforward versions of it, that's a very, I think, um, almost easy extension of yeah. um, traditional, uh, you know, regression analysis and so on, which most organizations don't find daunting at all. And then the other angle that's um, growing, I think, quite rapidly is this idea that buy some software from your transaction vendor that um, adds some AI capabilities to what they did already. So maybe it's Salesforce Einstein or SAP Leonardo or something along those lines. And that then the data is already there. Yeah. The user interface is pretty much the same one as, as the software had before. And you know, you, you're, if you want to do predictive lead scoring for many organizations, it's going to be easier to get that from Salesforce than it is to build it yourself and somehow develop an API to your yeah. Salesforce system or something. And I think you also talk about this in the book in terms of what challenges uh, companies may have in implementing uh, cognitive. I mean, you've got, we look at our, some of our members, don't we? And they're running very large and complex supply chains or manufacturing facilities across multiple geographies, multiple languages. Uh, sometimes these companies are 100 years old or more. They have legacy systems. They have uh, issues with business processes. What can a company or what can a supply chain director or manufacturing director, someone who really wants to implement digital transformation and cognitive within their business, what can they do to, to, to overcome those issues? Well, I mean, the, it's still, of course, the case that the, you know, the dirty secret of AI, as it was the dirty secret of analytics, is that you typically are going to spend most of your time working with data and getting it ready. But... Um, there's some good news that I describe in the book in that we're starting to be able to use AI to help with those mm. issues. Uh, probabilistic matching, for example, to kind of integrate data. I, I talk about GE doing that with all of its suppliers and doing it much more quickly than we've been able to do it with these very labor-intensive um, data integration approaches in the past. Um, I've been working, since I finished the book, I've been working with a number of companies on um, robotic process automation, which, as I say in the book, not the smartest technology, and some people would argue maybe it's not even AI, but it works quite well, and um, companies are starting to use um, what was a somewhat exotic technology called process mining to even find out how the current process is performing, and that uses um, AI as well, so um, I think there are a lot of of ways that AI can help you do these kind of basic things that um, were inhibiting companies from really transforming their their processes or their organizations. And the, there are a lot of examples that, that you've given around the first footholds and, and some of those some of those RPAs you mentioned. The first footholds being around. Uh, automation of seemingly quite mundane tasks, back office functions, chatbots, this kind of stuff. Um, 
it feels like those are ways to sort of break down the the psychological barrier of we are doing AI to, to do something quite small to make it a success and then you get some traction and buy in further up the organization. Is that what you tend to see? It's that sort of start small and then scaling from there? Yeah, one of the um, consultants I interviewed at one point described robotic process automation as the, the gateway drug for AI. I, um, I like I that. Yeah. I really like that. And then since then, I, I work with uh, this organization in the US that studies processes called APQC. And they've done some research suggesting that it really is the gateway drug for AI, that a lot of organizations start with um, that and then move to more sophisticated forms already, even though we're you know, early in the game for AI. Yeah, and, and in, in the how of that, you mentioned that um, bringing seemingly quite disparate elements together, whether that's small pilot projects in, in a big organization happening at different points, bring them together into a kind of cognitive center of excellence that, that allows that structure to be embedded in the organization. Does that tend to be where this successful projects sort of lead to? I think so. Um, I mean, who knows if that, if the projects lead to that or if that leads to, to the projects, maybe some or both, but um, I, you know, if you think this is a important and valuable resource, then why wouldn't you establish some sort of group to help manage it? Um, if you already had some analytics um, groups, then adding on some AI is, you know, not going to be a sort of revolutionary change. And I was somewhat surprised. I um, am just analyzing a new um, survey from Deloitte, um, just data recently gathered, and it said 37%, we don't have the non-US data in yet, but the US data said 37% of large companies said they had some sort of cognitive center of excellence, which um, seemed high to me, yeah. but- um, Compared to how many are actually supposedly using it, yeah. Yeah, they, they think they do anyway, and so, I think it, it certainly makes sense that you would establish an organization yeah. like that. Can I, can I ask about people for a second in terms of, I mean, I've got two questions with this. One is you talk about in the book, uh, who are the adopters and who are the people that are uh, looking to push AI and cognitive within the organization? You said the C-suite, if I remember correctly, were, were very big proponents of this. Do you think that this is, they really have a genuine understanding of the implications of launching a cognitive project? Uh, that's question one. And question two is, how do you then bring everyone else along with you uh, to then deliver a good and successful cognitive project? Well, the, yeah, the answer to your first question, do they have a good understanding, I think is generally no. Um, and that is a problem. I mean, a number of companies and surveys have said lack of understanding of our senior management of these technologies is a, is a barrier to our success. So um, some companies that I've worked with, I don't know how many in total, have done it, have had um, educational programs for the C-suite, the top 10 executives or whatever, which I think is a very good idea. And um, I, I mean, frankly, there have been some, uh, a fair number of cases where, I don't know, a board member would hear from a, a vendor, probably one vendor more than any others, <laughs> that, oh, you know, you really need to be doing something cognitive or you're going to lose out or, uh, you know, AI is the latest thing you've got to adopt it. It's sort of the airline magazine school of management too, basically, you know, they read something about it. Um, and that can be dangerous, I think, because they don't really have much of a sense of what technologies are well suited for what 
purposes and you know the, this how, what's the appropriate level of ambition about yeah. it so it can be quite problematic unless you go a little further in your educational efforts um, and how do you bring everybody else along I think um, this is related to the to the sort of the people who do the work issue I think everybody's a little nervous about this stuff now in some cases with good reason in some cases maybe not but I think organizations should let their people know what their kind of long-range plans are with this topic and how they can start to add value and and I think maybe send some reassuring messages out about you know we don't foresee large-scale you know job loss or anything yeah. with this stuff well I, I was gonna ask about that because you, you you talk about it being overhyped potentially and there is a sense that it might be overhyped uh, maybe the uh, some of the concerns surrounding the AI argument is this fear that automation uh, is gonna replace workers right uh, yet in your book you give reasons why large-scale automation isn't very likely could you perhaps maybe expand on that and are the workers safe <laughs> um, well, yeah, I don't think anybody can afford to be complacent fully yeah. about it, yeah. but um, the, you know, some of your um, uh, fellow countrymen at Oxford uh, with these data suggesting, you know, 47% of U.S. jobs are automatable, and I, frankly, I was a little suspicious when they said only 35% of U.K. jobs are automatable, <laughs> <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> I, we don't really have any idea. Um, I mean, they may be technically automatable, but there was a McKinsey study that they started out also with this very high, almost 50% level of jobs being automatable. But they said if you factor in, a, a couple of years later, they said this, if you factor in all of the other considerations, the cost of automation, the installed base, et cetera, et cetera, it's more likely that 5% of jobs might be actually automated. So that's been my feeling for a while. And when I, in general, when you talk to managers, automation is not really high on their list of objectives, if at least if they're being honest. Yeah. Although in this latest 2018 Deloitte survey, it's not gonna be published until um, week after next, I think, but something like 64% of the US participants did say, we'd like to automate as many jobs as possible. So. Um, that'll put some fear in some some workers. But you again, did say, I'm, I'm sorry, I was just about to jump in on Tim asking a question. I was just going to observe that the fact is that automation takes work initially. <laughs> uh, it so Absolutely. it's not going to be a flipper switch and tomorrow morning X number of workers have gone and they're replaced with automated yeah. processes. You've got to invest in the technology, yeah. you've got to do the research, you've got to make the changes. So yeah. it's not as easy as flipping a switch. And as we know, the reality is that finding time for innovation and change is a massive challenge for, for leaders. So they've still, you know, it's not going to kind of come overnight and somebody, somebody's going to have a horrible shock one morning. And then also these statistics tend to sort of work on the assumption that the existing paradigm will be the same, that nothing else will change, that work will be the same. And well, but, but you, you say that in the book, you say that uh, this automation will create different jobs, won't it? It will, and we don't know exactly how many, but interestingly, I think in 10 years in one survey, the number of people saying that new jobs will be created was higher than the number of people saying that there will be large-scale mm. job displacement. Yeah. So no, nobody knows exactly how this will all net out, but 
I think, and um, not so much in this um, recent book, but in my last book, I said, you know, you really need to be thinking now about how you're going to add value to these technologies, yeah. Um, yeah. learning as much as you can about them. And that book was more oriented to individual workers, and this one is more focused on enterprises. But and I think enterprises can certainly help their people by encouraging them to to do that. Yeah, I mean, with it, if you look at it from a personal point of view, if you were if you were to kind of assess the time-consuming, fairly mundane tasks that we all do, yeah. and then think, what could I do with that time in terms of innovation or exploring new ideas or uncovering new forms of value for the organisation? Then, you know, if you're going to be optimistic about it, then I think we have the potential to unlock some new capabilities in people and organisations. I think, and and it sounds like from the, from the research people are still tending towards that optimistic view as well, which is, which is good. I don't think anybody's looking at the march of the robots over the horizon just yet. No, despite all the excitement in the press about that idea, I don't think it's going to happen um, anytime yeah. soon. And even, you know, I was talking recently with this woman who um, was head of machine learning at Carnegie Mellon. She's now gone to a big bank to play, you know, the same role. Um, but she said when she went to Carnegie Mellon in, in the mid-1980s, everybody was saying, oh, autonomous vehicles, they're just around the corner. You know, we have prototypes. It's really going to be any day now. And we're still saying that today. So these things happen more slowly than anybody anticipates. Yeah. And um, the autonomous vehicle um, conversation is obviously very relevant to, to supply chains and logistics and this sort of thing. And um, I'm thinking about some of the more practical applications of AI technology in the manufacturing supply chain space where a lot of our audience and members uh, mm. are operating. Uh, and, you, and you look at some of the kind of operations changes that might take place uh, over the next few years. What are the big, the big wins that you think might be possible through implementing AI either on the factory floor or, or in the logistics operations side? Um, well, um, uh, let's talk about that uh, autonomous vehicles um, issue, because I do think that, um, it will happen first in relatively kind of um, uh, fenced off areas within um, large organizations. You already see it, for example, in mining oriented vehicles where, you know, they own all the property, they're not going yeah. on public yeah. roads and um, it works pretty well and in many cases leads to greater safety. Um, and I think even for things like trucking and so on, we'll see partial implementations of it. Maybe you know, a, a, tr a long distance truck will have a, a driver, but the driver can sleep while the um, autonomous capabilities are you know, driving overnight. And then when it comes into a city and has to negotiate um, streets or bad weather or something like that, you know, the, the human driver will take over. So, yeah, or there will be some sort of remote um, ability to take over yeah. with, a, with a human. So I think we'll see those kinds of hybrids before we see anything fully autonomous. And in factories, you know, I think the big opportunity is coordinating um, a lot of things that were previously uncoordinated, um, this digital twin idea that, you know, um, either for individual machines or ultimately I think for entire factories, we'd have a digital twin of it and we'd be able to understand patterns much better and anomalies and, and so on. Um, uh, 
the uh, you know predictive maintenance is already pretty far along, certainly with AI. Um, in, in the book, I talk about this company, Big River Steel, yeah. that um, kind of a brand new steel mill in Arkansas that has um, uh, worked with a, a AI firm to really um, support key functions of the plant with AI in a way that it never has before. And I, I've talked to a number of companies in the steel industry and it, who knows how it will succeed, but it has a lot of people's attention. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they describe themselves as a technology company that that happens to make steel. I think, which is yeah, yeah, fairly exactly. old way of, of kind of uh, projecting what we do. So, again, going back to that kind of pragmatic step by step approach, where where do you think manufacturing organisations and leaders might might start to look for the first for the first wins or the the low hanging fruit in this arena? Um, well, I, th I think there's a lot of really interesting stuff happening in the kind of um, uh, demand forecasting space. You know, that's always been a real hit or miss activity, but now there um, is a lot more external data available. Um, you can start to um, look at the things that use your product and see, you know, what's the consumption of those. Um, I talk in the book a little bit about this company, Exojet, it's not manufacturing, but they have, you know, uh, physical assets to deploy. Now there's a database of where every um, chartered jet is in, in the world. And so you can say, well, I, I'm going to not put mine where everybody else's uh, are and also charge more if I have some exclusivity in my um, location. So. Um, that that issue of using external data for demand prediction, I think, is a is a hot one that's going to grow a lot over the next um, several years. Um, uh, I think uh, obviously there are um, logistical applications, um, pricing. I've always said with analytics that if you want to make money fast with analytics, the best way to do it is pricing. And um, there are, I mean. Um, machine learning certainly is a technology that can be used in pricing. It's not much of an extension of what was previously done with, with dynamic pricing with regular analytics, but it is a bit of one. So I, to me, those are the, some of the big areas um, that we'll see more of. And um, of course, robotics is going to change, I think, pretty dramatically. We'll have much smarter robots than we ever had before. Some vendors are working on ways that the robots can start collaborating with each other. Um, that's actually my next um, book. I decided I'd written 20 nonfiction business books, so I'm going to write a fictional wow. novel about um, robotic American football, because I don't really, you know, I grew up in the South. I don't know that much about real football, but I know a lot about American football. And um, uh, you may have heard that our football players sort of bash their brains into mush yeah. in the sport. So I think people will be looking for how robots might take it over. <laughs> Maybe we won't have as many commercial breaks then. Uh, that would be good. They could just keep on playing. They don't need any rest. <laughs> so, so you talk about data, you know, uh, and also in the book, uh, I wanted to ask you how important or what kind of role does data play in the cognitive equation? And, uh, what can companies do today to prepare for a better data environment? Uh, it's absolutely critical. And, you know, sometimes it's internal data, sometimes it's external. Um, 
for machine learning and at least in business oriented applications, not, not um, that are you know, out, well out of the lab, labeled data is very critical. So you need to know um, what for the particular outcome that you're trying to predict or classify for your training data, you have to know what that outcome was. And um, that can be, I think, um, quite difficult if you have to get humans to go through and classify it for you. It's like, quite labor intensive. You know, maybe you have some data from the past for which you know what the outcome is and you can use that as your labeled data, but having labeled data is absolutely critical. And kind of the more sophisticated your AI methods are, the more data you need. So if you decide you want to do some deep learning based image recognition for, you know, defective products going by you on the, on the manufacturing line, you better have a clearly labeled set of products that have been defective in the past and what they look like mm. so that you can train your image recognition tools with, with deep learning. Deep learning can require, you know, millions of, yeah. of data elements. Yeah. There's a, a couple of conversations I've had recently with sort of digital leaders where they've said, the number one thing that organizations should be doing now is collecting their data. Yeah. Even if they don't have a specific application yeah. for it in mind, trust me, you will need it in the future. You will wish you had it going back three or three years, four do, years. Do you, think, do you think companies are swimming in more data now than they have been in a long time or collecting more? Yes. I mean, um, we have all these transactional systems in place, ERP, CRM, uh, et cetera. Financial systems are, are very mature. Now, um, there's all the online internet related data, uh, click streams uh, and so forth. There's a fair amount of data from the external environment that you can either buy or get through um, uh, open data kinds of things from government. So yes, we definitely are. And I think it's a struggle for many organizations to figure out how to use it all. But I, in general, I agree with you, Tim, that you should, I mean, you may not, want to accumulate data on, I don't know, how many rolls of toilet paper you're using or something. But if yeah. it has any relationship to the core of your business, I think it, it makes sense to collect it now, even if you're not going to use it now. So that's, I guess, partly a question of leadership, whether, yeah. you, whether you've got a chief digital officer, a chief data officer. Uh, some organizations may not have those because of a legacy, but to be fit for the future, that's something that they should be thinking about, I sense. Yeah, there's a great old story about a bank in the United States, a very successful and highly analytical bank called Capital One. And some new um, uh, owners or managers came in to run it, basically, who had this idea, we're going to use information to really change the way we do business. And they, they needed all the past data on credit card offers and so on, so they could sort of see what worked and what didn't. And, and the people said, uh, sorry, you know, we put that on computer tapes and we, we write over it to save the $22 of tapes that it would cost. So um, they were horrified, as you can imagine. Jeff yeah. Bezos always says, we never throw away data at Amazon. It's worked pretty well for him so far, I would say. Yeah, yeah I, we'll follow his lead. Right? I, I think, I think that's, a, that's a pretty good example to follow. Um, so from a practical perspective for supply chain and, um, and uh, manufacturing directors setting up their teams for the future, you know, uh, would that include someone with data capabilities? And uh, what other kind of skill sets should they be looking for in hiring people yeah. uh, for these teams to prepare them for the cognitive uh, implementation? And are they out there in enough numbers? 
well, they are not out there in enough numbers today, but I think it, there is um, a, a lot of um, analytical talent available. I was talking recently to the organization that accredits um, business schools around the world, and they, they counted up over 400 um, um, master's programs in analytics or big data um, just in business schools, and there are other sources okay. of them as well. So that's a pretty good place to start. You should at least doing, be doing more with, with analytics, if not AI. And then, you know, interestingly, I think um, people who do this sort of work are not immune from being automated themselves. So I, I talk in the book about automated machine learning capabilities. I just did a little study on that for a vendor. And it's quite interesting that the kinds of skills that people are increasingly say, saying they need is we need people who understand the business and who understand our customers and who are certainly data literate, but they may not have to have PhDs in, in statistics or something like that because the machine is increasingly doing that. It's figuring out what algorithms fit the data best and explaining why that particular person was classified in a, in a, in a certain um, category and the, even then, you know, spitting out some APIs that you can link into your production system. So um, understanding the business, I think, is the single most important thing. And then clearly some sort of quantitative orientation is very helpful. And then hopefully the next iterations of the technology will in some ways democratize AI itself. Mm -hmm. So that, I mean, you mentioned a couple of examples where uh, I think it's Airbnb have, have kind of developed an AI system that allows the kind of whiteboard sketching and ideation sessions to actually be converted into code. And I think if, if we can democratize the, the, the data process, the coding process to that degree, we can all be involved in the process in, in some way, which is a very exciting um, outlook for the future potentially. Yeah, the citizen data scientist, people refer to that, that whole concept. And I think it is a reality. Yeah, and, and, and I think you mentioned in the book as well about individuals preparing themselves for, uh, I mean, you talk about businesses preparing for the cognitive uh, implementation. So having sort of training schools and centers of cognitive, et cetera. But you also talk about people preparing themselves for that. How, how would people go about doing that? Well, there are a pretty vast array of um, learning resources. You know, there are so many um, uh, online MOOCs, uh, um, uh, course, online courses that you can take about machine learning and so on, and people kind of um, certify themselves. And, you know, I, I believe it's important for organizations to start to tell their employees what, what to do in this regard and give them some advice. But in general, I think people, in, individuals know best what their current skills are, yeah. Um, they can sort of sense the, maybe the way the world is going and how they might evolve in that direction. But that was really the focus of my last book, Only Humans Need Apply, that, that you need to sort of think about what's your general strategy, which of five we outlined are you going to adopt for working alongside smart machines and then um, pursue one of those. Um, I'm interested in sort of flipping that um on its head a bit because we're talking about people using AI. I'm interested in AI using people and some of the ethical considerations around it. I appreciate we could probably fill an hour's conversation just talking about the ethics of AI, but um, 
as it stands, you feel that the technology is heading in a direction where it's kind of self-regulating or ultimately can you see a need for something that's a bit more structured around this so that we don't go off down some worrying routes using AI for, you know, profiling and this kind of stuff? Yeah, well, of course, that varies a lot by geography. So I think um, Europe has been, to my mind, smarter about it. And I think the GDPR regulations are a step in the right direction. And some smart companies in the US are saying, we're gonna, we're gonna do that everywhere, um, even though we only have to do it in Europe. So um, in the US, we don't have much regulation of this at all. And we're, you know, we start to see the impact with the, all the things happening at Facebook and Google and, and so on. Um, so I think enterprises need some help from governments and they should probably be asking for it rather than trying to resist it. I think it'll be good for them in the long run. Um, you know, this is the, the negativity about analytics and AI is a pretty new thing. It's only come up in the, in the last year or two. Um, so I'm not sure, I mean, my general belief is that people, consu individual consumers should ultimately own their own data and they give it up, they should get something in exchange for it. Um, sometimes you do that, you get free software or whatever. You, I get a free Gmail um, uh, email client that works pretty well as long as I'm letting them read my emails and I know that <laughs> and it's fine with me. Yeah. Um, but we all need to sort of think of it as a value exchange and governments need to say, look, if you're gonna use somebody's data, you have to get the permission to do it. Then there are also these transparency issues of, you know, um, what, uh, why did the algorithm decide that you deserve credit and, and somebody else doesn't? Um, and that's pretty straightforward with traditional analytics, it's less straightforward with simple machine learning. It's even, it's virtually impossible with complex forms of machine learning like deep learning. So we need to, we need to figure out how do we make those things transparent and um, researchers are working on it, but at the moment, not transparent at all. So I think if you're in a highly regulated industry, you just really can't, you know, healthcare or financial services, you just really can't use those, those AI um, um, algorithms. So I, I guess as, as we wrap things up, I, I'm interested in, you spend a lot of time researching, talking to people involved in this space. Are you, are you very optimistic about AI and its impact on the world, mm. both of commerce and society and whatever, you know? you probably know as much as a lot of people. So how do you feel about it overall? If, if someone said yes or no, what's the, what's the value for you? Uh, I am quite optimistic. You know, I think um, it's going to take longer than many people argue, but um, you know, maybe I think of AI as being evolutionary in the short run and revolutionary in the long run yeah. as we, um, as we, provide greater intelligence for more and more things that we do in business and, and organizational life. I think that's all to, all to the good. I think we will at some point get to the point where we can treat cancer and uh, have, um, I'm hoping by the time I get too old to drive, there will be autonomous vehicles around by then. I think there are all sorts of, of societal benefits for this, and I'm not that worried as some people have been about, you know, robot overlords starting to kill us all. I don't, I don't see that happening at least yeah. in my lifetime. But I do think it's not a bad idea to start to put those sorts of, uh, put 
processes and policies in place that, that might prevent it from happening, even though I don't think it's realistic anytime soon. And to wrap up, I guess, how we started, which is what you say in the book about the, the hype, but more importantly about whether or not companies should be doing something. Uh, again, thinking about our members, thinking about the journeys that they're on, some of them will probably agree with you with regards to the fact that they understand it's important, they understand it's something that they should be doing, but might be thinking maybe down five years down the line, maybe 10 years down the line, what will happen with those organizations that uh, don't embrace this cognitive uh, revolution? I, I think they will um, suffer and, and die in, a, in the sense that I, this seems to me a technology that's not well suited to being a fast follower, or certainly not a slow follower, because it, you, it does take a lot of learning. You do have to get, yeah. gather a lot of data. I think companies that decide in five years that, oh yeah, we really need to get with this AI thing may have lost a lot of ground. And it's not unlike what happened with previous generations of technology, you know, retailers that didn't adopt online commerce have suffered with, with regard to Amazon. Um, shippers that didn't realize that information was as important as the, the package itself have lost out to UPS and FedEx. Um, uh, retailers that didn't care about logistics and supply chain have lost out to Walmart. So um, this, I think, will have similar effects on enterprises that don't really get with the program. Well, one thing we haven't talked about briefly, and I know I just said wrapped up, but um, is the, uh, unlike, I guess, business models in the past, there's the whole disruptive companies, disruptive startups uh, that are in the scene that are really throwing in a, a, a spanner in the works to some degree. They're, some of these guys are adopting uh, cognitive far more readily than other companies and are. And building around it. And building mm -hmm. around it and disrupting these large com companies. So I guess added to the question I just asked you about companies that don't embrace uh, AI and, and cognitive, where will they be versus those companies that are disruptive? Well, yeah, I mean, you, you were talking about manufacturing before, and it turns out that manufacturing is not a highly valued business model in the in investment um, markets. You know, it tends to be two times revenues on average. Um, yeah. Uh, if you take these platform-oriented companies, uh, Uber and Airbnb and Facebook and so on, they're like nine times revenues on yeah. average, and they can only do those business models with AI. So I think at the same time you're thinking about embracing AI, you should be thinking about, well, you know, clearly I'm not gonna turn from a manufacturer to a platform company overnight, but maybe I can add some capabilities, maybe I can, start to sell somebody else's stuff in addition to mine, the way Amazon started to do with, yeah. with uh, Amazon Marketplace. Maybe I can embrace some tech-oriented capabilities mm -hmm. as GE has tried to do. I mean, that hasn't worked out terribly well so far, but I think it, uh, it will eventually work out well for them. So um, uh, diversifying your business model and using AI to do it, I think, is, is a yeah. great idea. I mean, the automotive sector is a great example there, isn't it? Where I think they're looking at completely revolutionizing, you know, looking at the servitization model. Yeah. Uh, will we all even own cars in 25 years' time, or will we be kind of, you know, on a yeah. pay-to-play sort of model? So I think right. we're seeing signs of it, but it's it's a way to go. Yeah, yeah it's slow. I was with the, the head of data and analytics for Ford this week and they're they're certainly pursuing a, a very active um, definite mobility oriented strategy so that they're well positioned by the time this comes and 
GM is doing that as well. You know, a lot of car companies around the world. So they're smart, I think, to, to start transitioning. Yeah. Well, I think um, hopefully this conversation's given uh, the audience some thoughts and impetus into, into making some changes, not necessarily completely redefining their business model, but actually looking at picking off some of these automatable activities uh, to free up their minds and time and bandwidth to do maybe some new innovative stuff as well. So. And, and clearly by reading your book and the practical and actionable advice that you give there, I think it sets uh, a lot of companies in a, in a good stead to be able to implement change within their businesses. Great. Hope so. Thanks yeah. for your questions. They were great. Thank you. Yeah, Tom, yeah. thanks for joining us and um, good luck with, with the book and we'll, we'll see you on the other side when the robots are our overlords. Great. <laughs> okay. See you. Thanks, Tom. Bye-bye.